ATP Tennis Radio brings you comprehensive coverage of the clay court season. Starting in Monaco and ending with Grand Slam coverage of the French Open, courtesy of Radio Roland Garros. That's the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters from the 15th to the 21st of April. The backhand cross got this winner! Followed by the first full ATP 500 coverage at the Barcelona Open Bank Sabadell from the 22nd to the 28th of April. Rafa Nadal is champion in Barcelona once again. Then it's on to the Matua Madrid Open and the Internazionale BNL d'Italia in Rome from the 6th to the 19th of May. Zverev, the only man left standing. Before concluding with Roland Garros in June. Nadal raises his arms in triumph. Rafa, the incomparable in Paris. In all, that's over 40 days of live coverage of the clay court season here on ATP Tennis Radio. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Welcome to the latest ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier and I'm here at the magnificent Monte Carlo Country Club stage, of course, for the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters. I am alongside tennis journalist and regular voice on ATP Tennis Radio, Simon Cambers. Simon, it's great to have you here. Tell us first how much you look forward to to this one. I, I love this place and I love what it stands for is not just the history of the tournament, which in itself is fantastic, but it's the beginning, the real beginning of the clay court season, the beginning of the push right up to Roland Garros. And for me, over the years, I've learned or sort of more and more enjoyed clay court tennis. I started out being much more of a lover of fast court tennis. This is more tactical. It's more pure in many ways. And I, and I really, really love and enjoy watching clay court tennis. So starting in Monte Carlo, you could not get a better scenic, more scenic venue for a, a fantastic tournament. We will be getting lots more of Simon's thoughts as we look ahead. Uh, we'll also hear over the next half an hour or so from Felix Ogialiassime, whose rise to 33 in the world has been astronomical this year. He is a wild card here. Thomas Johansson on being back together with David Goffin. Stefanos Tsitsipas, who was a qualifier here last year as well. He's now the world number eight. But first of all, I spoke with Craig O'Shaughnessy from Brain Game Tennis and an analyst for the ATP. We spoke... All things clay, he busts some major myths along the way. We also talk inevitably about Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic, among others. Here's Craig O'Shaughnessy. The clay court swing starting here, the big tournaments here in Monte Carlo, and then building through Barcelona, building to Madrid, building to Rome, and then you've got Roland Garros. And you know, for the last, I'd say, dozen years, you look for building a form. And Nadal, especially through these series of tournaments, his ability to save break points is incredible. It, it almost becomes the toughest point to win in tennis. And you watch him do it through this series of tournaments leading into Paris. And if he is doing that at a high rate, when those break points come, the love 40s, the 1540s, the add outs, um, if he's if he's saving those, typically for him, you know, being a lefty, he's playing most of them in the ad court. So I think it's around 76% of all break points are in the ad court. And he's lining up that 
lefty slider out wide. He's pulling the opponent off the court. He's he's double dipping with a serve plus one forehand. He's typically going back behind the opponent. And, you know, he's got such an advantage on those break points. So he's a big one that I look for. For Novak, you know, it's going to be very important now to build through this um, clay court season. He didn't do well in Indian Wells in Miami. Uh, obviously a great Australian Open, but, you know, needs to start back here. So for the whole clay court season, do well in Monte Carlo, springboard into the rest of the tournaments, and hopefully have a very deep run at Roland Garros. And you've got Dirt Baller launching here, um, part of your Brain Game tennis brand, I guess. Yes. Um, it looks fascinating. Yeah. I'm sure Nadal, Messrs Nadal and Djokovic feature in it, but what are the headlines from it, if you could pick just a few out? Yeah, so we've got this myth about clay court tennis, this history where in order to be good on clay, if you go to the practice court, it's all about patience and consistency and shot tolerance and grinding and suffering. And, you know, the theory of that is pretty sound. You look at it as like, okay, you know, let's get a million balls in the court first. Let's go to the practice court and hit, you know, a lot of backhands, cross court and a lot of forehands. But when you go and look at the match metrics... It's not so. So I'll give you one piece of information from Dirt Baller. I looked at the last three years of Roland Garros, 2016, 2017, and 2018, men's and women's tournaments, and then compared them to New York, US Open, in the same years. And what I found, you have three rally lengths in tennis, a zero through four rally length. Those are all the short points. That's first strike tennis. Five through eight, that's your patterns of play. And nine plus, so all the rallies of nine shots or longer. And you would naturally think, everybody naturally thinks, there has to be more rallies in zero through four in New York over clay. There has to be. It's simply not true. There are more short rallies at Roland Garros for both the men and the women. And when you look at the long rallies of nine plus, you'd say, well, that's the beating heart of clay court tennis. There are more long rallies in New York than there are at Roland Garros. So... When you look at the match metrics from clay, which we've never done, they are blowing the myths of clay court training out the window. And I guess that's all you're going to give us. And because <laughs> you, you're going to tell people they've got to go and bad. find it. That's not bad. Yeah, there's, there's over 50 web pages of very detailed analysis. There's um, half of Dirt Baller is about clay strategy. So we look at forehands and backhands. We look at, yes, there is a diminished role of the serve on clay. Um, how, what's the best way to return? Where do you return? So we cover all of that, and then you go and look at clay matches. So I've got, you know, from the ATP website, a, a lot of, uh, you know, historical analysis there, and we take that and we break it down again and look at that analysis. So you get a very big, broad picture of what clay court tennis is all about, the strategy and the match metrics. And again, it's just, you know, what I like to do is, is look at what's actually happening in a match, understand that, and then go and organize our practice court accordingly. Without the match metrics, we go to the practice court, and we kind of guess on what we're going to work on, and then we say, okay, let's go play a match, and we hope it works. We don't need to train that way anymore. I remember talking to you in, in London at the NITO ATP Finals, and we spoke about practice in particular. Mm -hmm. And you're a coach as well. Just talking more generically, you know, we don't have to, yeah. you know, um, spoiler alert, you're, yeah. uh, you're, you're dirt baller. But in terms of physically practicing and also mentally to a degree for, for the clay, yeah. what are you looking at if a player's transitioning from one to the, to the other? Well, you would automatically think it's all about 
extended rallies and and you know 12 and 14 and 40 shots and but it's not you know it's 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 exactly the same you want to be hitting your spot serving so on clay it's not about the huge serve it's not about the power serve it's about hitting spots and you know just as, as we're looking here we're watching Rafa in the distance practicing over there he's he's in the ad court he's hitting his spots he's hitting a serve plus one forehand and that's really what clay court's all about and we see Rafa stand further back and I'm trying to figure out why does he do this why does he get so far back what it does is it allows the ball to slow down it allows the ball to drop into his hitting zone so instead of him being up around the baseline blocking the return more he stands back and takes a full cut at the ball so he doesn't have kind of a rally forehand and a return forehand he stands way back and he's so strong that he can rip that ball from deep and get it deep to the other side of the court to start the point so just like the other surfaces if you do well in the first four shots you get ahead you start dominating the rally, especially here with depth and spin and direction off the court, you will win. It's not so much about the longer rallies. In fact, the longer a rally goes in our sport, the more even it naturally becomes. You don't forge a bigger advantage in a 22-shot rally. You forge a bigger advantage in a two-shot rally. Fascinating. I want to ask you specifically something about Mr. Nadal in a minute. But first of all, Novak. Yes. Um, did you manage to put your finger on why he was below par, um, really, since the Australian Open? Uh, Indian Wells and Miami, both pretty tough tournaments for him. What what wasn't quite working? Yeah, I think it was a, a, a number of things. I think it was kind of 10 things that all kind of, you know, stormed at once and, and, and he, was, he was off there. So, um, you know, if, from a coaching perspective, when you have those tournaments that you're like, mm, this didn't go according to plan and this is not who Novak really is, what you do is you dismiss them. You take them and you push them aside and you're like, okay, that's done. We don't even really need to review them. We don't need to go back and look at it. This wasn't you. It wasn't your ideal preparation off the court that, that led to you performing as you normally would. So, um, you know, sometimes it's good to just go, okay, that's done. That's over. Let's move on. And that's really what we've done with those two tournaments. It's almost like they didn't happen. Because you're giving him quite a bit of information. Yeah, obviously with it, with his head coach, Marion Vida, yes. you know, I, I know you do quite a lot of analysis. When he's taking all kinds of other things on the court, whether he means to or not from, you know, politics and whatever else, yes. is it more difficult for him to put into practice what you're telling him to do? It's more difficult for everyone to put into practice. When your mind is not crystal clear and you're not calm and relaxed and focused and all of your energy is driving towards the match court, it becomes very difficult. And, you know, that's the same in junior tennis. I mean, you know, kids are out there and, a, you know, a 14-year-old boy or girl could have an off day, but let's have a look at how many tests they had at school that week and how many fights they had with their brothers and sisters and, and how much sleep they had and the food. You know, there's, there's a lot of things off the court that you want to manage and, 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 and make right so that your on-court performance can be at its peak. And for players at all levels of the game, it, 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 you know, it's not easy to do. Conversely, here in Monte Carlo, he, he scoots to the tournament, doesn't he, practically? You know, so you'd think he's had the perfect prep here. Yeah, um, you, would, you would think normally it would lean more towards that. But, you know, also when you're in your own backyard, sometimes the expectations can be big. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're in a good spot leading into Monte Carlo. I think we're in a great spot leading into, um, leading into the clay court season and you know you, you the old cliche it's one point at a time one game at a time one set at a time one 
one match at a time. Um, you know, he'll play the, the winner of Cole Schreiber and um, Kokonakis from the first round. So I'll obviously watch that and see their form and, and see what's, you know, what they're feeling out there on the court. But um, I, I, I feel fairly confident we're going to have a wonderful spring on the clay uh, this year. Fairly confident, too, that another man is probably going to have a wonderful spring on the clay, too. Rafa Nadal, can I just ask you about Rafa? Yes. In particular here, because obviously he's won lots everywhere else, but he's going for his 12th title here in Monte Carlo. Mm. Why is he so dominant here on these courts? Uh, again, a number of factors. It's the first clay court event of the season for a lot of players. There was a week last week, I think Marrakesh and Houston. Um, but for a lot of these bigger players, this is their first one. You know, he has adapted his game to be perfectly situated on clay. So when you don't have a month of lead-up to get your game ready, he's ahead of the game in, in that respect. So a lot of guys will be, okay, I, I, you know, I want to get some matches under my belt. Whereas Rafa's just, you know, he's, he's so ready to go on this surface. Um, you know, we're, we're right at sea level. Um, so I think that helps him when, you know, Madrid, and, and this is something that, that you should look up. I, I hear conflicting reports about Madrid. Some people say it's altitude, some people don't. Um, but, you know, of all the clay court matches, it is in Spain. That's the one that, he's, that he hasn't done the best at. So, uh, you know, I think the heavier conditions, you know, the courts here are very red, which is a signature of having a lot of moisture in those courts. Um, you know, we, you go more to Rome uh, or, or, or Roland Garros a little bit, the, the, you know, the colour's a little bit more of a lighter orange rather than a darker red. But, you know, this is, it, it's, it's early on, he's hungry, he's better suited to this surface. Um, it takes the spin well here, you know, and, and it does at Roland Garros as well. Roland Garros is a slightly different court where it's just so rock hard, so, so baked hard, but... Uh, you know, he is, he is a very, very tough man to beat here. And, and again, I go back to those break points. When he is on and saving those break points, you know, no one in the world can beat him. If there is to be a pretender, or if there is a pretender to his throne, lots of people have been talking for a very long time about Dominic Thiem. Yeah. Um, now that he's won his first Masters 1000, mm -hmm. ironically not on clay, mm -hmm. um, it kind of gets the monkey off his back a little bit. Do you almost expect more of him now that he's... I mean, he hasn't always done well here, but mm -hmm. should we be expecting more of him now on clay? Absolutely. He is a fantastic player. He hits... You know, I look at the metrics on, on the power that a player hits uh, their shots and the spin, and he is regularly number one in the hardest ball hit and the most spin on a ball, more than Rafa with that, um, with that forehand. So... You know, it, it, it's a lot of times with, with Dominic, it's, if he loses, he's more beating himself. He's more not adapting to the opponent. I remember watching, it was a different match. It was indoors against Goffin in London. And Goffin went off pace. He went, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to hit at average speed. And, and Dominic didn't know what to do with that. And he couldn't problem solve that at the time. But, you know, his, his backhand is incredible. His forehand is big. He serves well. You know, I think he's spot serving. He loves the kicker out wide in the ad. Um, he'll go there more on bigger points. He likes the tee serve. You know, I think a little bit more varying that up to keep opponents guessing. But, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of his game. He's, he's a wonderful young man, and he's got, you know, a, a very bright future, especially on clay. So there are some very big titles waiting for him down the road. If I gave you my mortgage to bet on it, 
this week, who who would you who would you put it on for me? <laughs> well, it's your mortgage, not mine. So this, uh, I mean, you know, you've got to on these on these tournaments, you must always put Rafa at number one. That that's absolutely. Um, you've got to go out and beat him. You, somebody must take him out of the draw. And as soon as he's taken out of the draw, then we can start talking about everybody else. Um, for Novak, you know, again, as I talked about, I want to dismiss those, those two tournaments on hard in the spring, but um, he's got to come back here and prove that um, the form is there, the hunger is there, and, and, and his game is there. So, you know, let's get a few matches in here before we start you know, penciling him into a semi or a final or, or winning this event. So, you know, all conversations on Clay start and end with Rafa. And until he's out of the tournament, you really, you know, every, everybody else. It's the field or Rafa and everybody else is a dark horse. This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Craig O'Shaughnessy there from Brain Game Tennis and an analyst too for, for the ATP. Simon Camber's I don't know how long you've been writing about Rafael Nadal, probably longer than you care to admit. 11 titles Nadal has here in Monte Carlo. Um, it's an incredible aura that he's built, isn't it? On, on these courts especially. It is. I mean, this was the place that he really came to prominence in the first place. When he was 16, he goes out and wins against uh, Costa. He beats Costa on the main court here. He shows everybody as a young teenager that he is going to be a real star of the future. And from that moment on, this place has has been very special to him. Every single time he comes here, he feels at home. He just, the place sort of almost adapts to Rafa. It feels like his place, not just because he's won 11 titles, but it's a slower surface than some of the other some somewhere like Rome, for example, where the, the clay is a little bit lighter and the ball flies faster. Here, it digs in. You've really got to be a clay court sort of guru almost, a mudlark. They love this stuff. And I think Nadal is, is, has always been that. But he's, he's won it 11 times. To win anything 11 times. No other man's won any tournament 10 times. And Nadal's only 32, 33 this year. If he keeps fit, you've got to imagine there'll be at least a couple more of these. He could be up to 15 before we're done. You're writing for ESPN. Uh, and also for the the Roland Garros website, you came here wanting to ask him a few questions. G- give me one of them. I want to ask Nadal whether he re- whether he, he doesn't like comparing himself uh, to the way he felt last year coming in. He always gets asked that here. He doesn't like it. But I want to ask him whether he feels he's a better player now than he was, say, when he was absolutely ripping through French Opens without even being touched, 2008, 2000. 10 etc um i'd love to know whether he because he's not as fast as he was but he's a different kind of player his backhand's better some of the other players have been talking about that here already this week and i'd just like to see whether he thinks he's just continually improving and novak djokovic um is the world number one he's got a winning record against rafa nadal but not on clay of course i think it's 716 against on clay if rafa's not going to win here what what can we expect from Novak, and would you put him at the top of, you know, the, the contenders to to topple him? Yeah, absolutely at the top. I mean, there are other people who may have better clay court form recently, but you know, Djokovic was the number two player on clay in the last few years, while Nadal was number one. He's always been there or thereabouts. He's improved all all the time, and mentally, I think Djokovic thinks he can beat Nadal on any surface on any given day. So if it's in a final, which it always would be while they're one and two, I think he will really fancy his chances. It's just for him, it'll be getting that form back, getting that confidence back after the dips in Miami and Indian Wells and then getting on a roll and building towards Paris. 
And I asked Craig O'Shaughnessy as well about Dominic Team. So I'll ask you the same question. Do you think he's almost made a, a major breakthrough, ironically, away from the clay in winning Indian Wells to the extent that he arrives here probably mentally in better shape than he has been in previous years? Uh, no question. Um, about a year ago, people wondered whether he could play on hard courts, whether he really was just a one-trick pony, good on clay and nothing else. But he's proven that he's good enough to win on hard courts, win big tournaments. And, you know, you can't win tournaments like a Masters 1000 and not get massive confidence from it, especially coming back onto your best surface. I think with team, he tends to build as the season goes goes along. So he might not play his best in Monte Carlo. He might, but he might sort of take a little bit of time to build into it. But certainly in Paris, you'd expect him to be right up there. And, and again, if Nadal is not going to win the tournament, then someone like team, who absolutely loves playing on clay and is a physical beast, is going to be right there. Well, he was hitting the ball very hard in practice yesterday alongside Rafael Nadal, who was probably the only player in practice who hits the ball harder than, than Dominic Team. He's still pretty young, Dominic Team as well, mid, uh, mid-20s. You just wonder, though, whether one of the really young guns is going to make it through. 18-year-old Canadian Felix Auger-Aliassime has continued to set records this year. He's reached the final in Rio and then the semis in Miami which is where ATP Tour Uncovered caught up with him, his team and his family for some home cooking, would you believe? This is a lovely insight into the life of perhaps the next big thing. Obviously, I cooked everything, right? <laughs> no, no, no. All made by my mom right here. So she's the one that uh, made it all happen. We usually either have a soup or a salad, you know, trying to get some veggies in. So tonight it's salad. And yeah, we've got some uh, appetizers here, like almost chips, veggies, olives. But I only drink sparkling water. If I could drink sparkling on court, I'd probably do it. Oh, and maple syrup. Yeah. Big key as well. Maple syrup yeah. is life. No joke. I bring it from home, from Quebec. Yeah. So in front of me, we have Nicolas Perrot, our uh, fitness coach at Tennis Canada. He's improving a lot. I think uh, it's very interesting because uh, I've been working with uh, Felix for three and a half years now. Then we have Frédéric Fontaine. I mean, the secret is tonight, eh? it's all come, all come from the food, so... <laughs> <laughs> and then we have my mom at the forehand, Marie, who is uh, obviously the reason I'm here today. My best friend, my sister here, Medica. So she's also playing tennis uh, in college and uh, she's helping me a lot, you know, with, with everything. She's really a um, great sister, so. I'm just a little sister. People assume <laughs> that I'm younger than him. They, yeah. they don't even ask. It's just, oh, this is your little sister. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's living his dream, so I always believe that he will be on the top of the best player in the world. So it's just a matter of the time. Take one step at a time and yeah. See, good advice, huh? I think it's the best things, you know, that to have a brother and a sister near to you for all your life, it's the most beautiful gift they have. We got a break point opportunity here. Yeah. It's better to watch it from here than to be like playing on court. Sometimes it's more relaxed, you know? And obviously it breaks the routine of going hotels every week. It's nice to have my people at home, get some home food in. It's, it's nice, yeah. I didn't want to focus too much on results or expectations or 
you know, top 50 or top 30. I mean, if I do good things on the court, these things will eventually happen for me. I mean, obviously these moments help, you know, with the family because these moments help me stay grounded and at the end I'm really focused on what I have to do every day to be a better player. I don't want to be remembered for just one year I had that was great. That's why I lace up the shoes and, and go to work, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Simon Cambers, how good is Felix Auger Aliassine? Very, very good. He's, he's incredibly impressive. I mean, if you think Dominic Team is a physical beast, Felix Auger-Aliassime just gives off that aura of being sort of Monfils-like in his ability to cover the court, but maybe with a bit more, bit more dynamism, a bit more, he's a bit broader perhaps, a um, bit more strength. And I think the, when we're looking at players who are going to take over from the likes of Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, in whatever order you want to make that, just to make sure that that wasn't uh, a biased view, um, then you need someone who is going to have, who's going to be a great athlete first and foremost, I think. And he is that. And he is confident. And it was interesting talking to Kane Ishikori here. He thinks that Felix Auger-Aliassime has a perfect game for clay. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he does um, here this week, especially. But yeah, I mean, he's got everything going for him. I think it helps him that he has Denis Shapovalov right next to him, who I think will be number one at some stage because uh, he's got it all. It's all about putting it all together and it'll happen. But that takes the pressure off Felix and has done all the way up through his career, even though everyone's been tipping him, including Shapovalov, to be the, the next big thing. But he's, he's, he's got the ability, absolutely. Next to him, literally, as well, here in Monte Carlo, because they're playing doubles together, which is a lovely little side, you know, side plot. But they're really good friends. I mean, they are absolutely best friends on tour. Um, Shapovalov has really helped uh, Ogier Aliassime get used to life on tour. You know, he consoled him at the US Open last year. We saw the way they get on. I think uh, it's only going to help him. And, you know, Shapovalov should probably be a bit careful not to help him too much. Otherwise, it might come back to haunt him. It's going to be fascinating to see whether these young players come up and overtake, in a way, the generation of players who came before them. We spoke last year of the, that generation who'd essentially been burnt by the big four, continually losing to them over the past 10 years. One of those um, in that bracket and making a comeback, I say comeback, it, he's not coming back from too far down the rankings, but David Goffin has gone back to Thomas Johansson, who worked with him before. Uh, I spoke with Thomas recently. I'm very excited to be back. Uh, I was working, like you said, I was working with, with David in 2016, uh, together with, um, with his coach at the time, Thierry. And we had a, a very good, um, you know, partnership. We had good results that year. So um, I'm really happy to be back. And, and now we are. The good thing about that is that we don't need this uh, get to know time, you know, get to know each other time because we know each other really well. And we had a lot of contact even uh, when we were not working together. So, um, yes, I'm very excited to be back. I was going to ask you how it came about, but it, was it something that had been in, in the, on the cards for a while? No, um, David's, David and Thierry's ended their partnership in, in Melbourne and, um, and then I was uh, working at that time with Krajinovic um, and then in Montpellier uh, we decided to go separate ways and then two weeks after that David um, contacted me and, and um, asked if we could you know, meet up and, and maybe see if there was a, a chance that we could work together again. I was going to ask how it's different this time and I guess the obvious difference is that it's it's just you 
you, is it easier in a way to be the, the main coach rather than coming in almost as a consultant working with someone else? Yes, uh, I, I think it's easier to be alone, even though we had a very good uh, uh, partnership in, in 2016 together with Thierry, uh, because Thierry had been working with, with David since he was 12 years old, and, and I came in as more, like, like you said, a consultant or advisor, or was maybe more focusing on the, on the tactical things uh, on the court. But um, yes, it is different to be alone. Um, it's uh, a little bit more traveling, but I enjoy it. So, and um, I think this time is is um, it's more challenging uh, because um, I think the depth in the tennis now is 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 amazing. I mean, now it's the first time ever that the youngsters are coming up and they're actually challenging the the big guns. So uh, for me, it's it's extremely tough to you know for for a player like David to come back in the top 10 but of course that's you know that's our big goal to to try to achieve that yeah he's, he's also been desperately unlucky hasn't he with injury and fitness I mean some freakish things that have happened to him do you think he just needs a good run of being healthy and and that the results will start to come yes I think so he like you said he has been very unlucky with with injuries I mean in Paris, he, you know, he stepped on the, um, he twisted his ankle very bad, and then he got, you know, the ball in in his eye in Rotterdam. So, uh, but now the good thing now is that he's he's healthy, uh, he's hungry, he wants to, uh, you know, he wants to work hard, and he he knows what he's capable of. So now we just need a, you know, a couple of months with no injuries and and uh, you know, hopefully some good results. I want to ask you about the mental and physical sides of the game. Um, First of all, the mental side is, ironically, is part of the, the battle with his injuries, winning everything in the head and getting him back in, believing, I guess, that he can do it. Yes. Um, and also, when, you, when you've had an injury, let's say you've had a shoulder injury and, or a knee injury or whatever, and even if you're 100% healthy, then, you know, maybe one practice you feel a little bit and then, of course, you get very scared. Oh, no, it's, you know, is he coming back or not? So... I think that after an injury, you're a little bit more sensitive to what the body tells you. And, and um, I think you can ask most of the both female and male players at the top. They, it's not one morning they wake up and they feel like the body is 100%. So I think sports in general is, is great for your body. But I think sports and on an elite level is not good for your body. So, um, But like I said, now he's, he's healthy and... He's, uh, he's ready to work hard. Remind me, was injury something that you had to deal with as a player or were you generally a lucky player in terms of fitness? Uh, well, I had, I had a lot of injuries. Um, I also had, it's funny enough, I also had an eye injury in Rotterdam. So I, I needed an eye surgery uh, the day after. So, and luckily, David, was, it was not that bad. Um, of course, it was bothering him for, for a while, but now, now he's back. But also the mental part of the game now in, in today's tennis is that the youngsters are coming up. And as you get older, you are more aware of the risks. You are more aware of the danger on the court. These youngsters, they are coming out firing left and right. So that's also a very tough, um, tough mental battle when you go up against these young guys because they, um, they, they are not afraid of taking risks. And physically, 
you, you talk about the youngsters. I mean, you, you've got guys like Taylor, Taylor Fritz and uh, and Riley Opelka. He's six foot eleven. You know, you've got guys who are six foot five and look relatively small next to him. Steph Sitsipas is six five six six. He's fairly commonplace now. How does a guy like David, who is not, I mean, he's probably five eleven and you know he doesn't weigh a lot. Um, how does he match these guys' power the, in this modern day, this modern game? It's very tough. I have to say, but you also have to be aware of what kind of player you are. And David is not a player that is is basing his game on power. His game is based on being quick on the court, changing directions really fast. Um, and it's the same with the serve. He doesn't have a like a serve like Opelka or Taylor Fritz, but he serves quite tactically, you know, very good. So. Um, you have to be smart on the on the court, and you also know, have to know what kind of battle you have to uh, to fight against them. Um, and sometimes it's not about the power; it's more about the, like I said, changing directions really fast, or, or you know, cutting corners uh, all the time on the court. So, and that's that's what David is is one of the best guys in the world at. And what about your coaching philosophy, Thomas? Is are there changes? Have things evolved since three years ago? Or is it the same sort of thing that you're bringing to the practice court these days? I think it's pretty much the same. The, the only change that we have now is what I said, is the youngsters coming up. And, and uh, those guys are, are very, very tough to play um, because you, you don't really know what's coming at you. Um, so... But I think you know it's it's important to, to work hard. As you get older, it's it's very important to work smarter. Maybe you don't have to spend four hours on the court. Maybe it's enough with two and a half, and maybe you go in the gym or you do some something else to you know get get the body so the body feels good the next day. Um, but with David, we are trying to you know make him more uh, to play more offensive game. Uh, not be afraid to come into the net. Um, take a little bit more risk sometimes. So, because if you go up against, let's say, Novak, Rafa, uh, you know, even a guy like Tsitsipas or whatever, I mean, you, you have to try to play smart against them. You can't. It's very tough to beat them from the baseline. So you have to. When the opportunity comes, you really have to strike. On iTunes, Spotify, tune in and ATPTour.com. This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Thomas Johansson there. Um, David Goffin, arguably, I'm going to put this out there, the closest to beating Nadal here in Monte Carlo for the last three years. Yeah, I was thinking about this because uh, Kyle Edmund came sort of close when he thumped Nadal in one set and everyone thought, oh my God, what's going on here? Uh, but Goffin was genuinely close and wronged, really, in a, in a difficult situation for him with a linesman call. Uh, that didn't come, but I, I think he's been, he's really, I mean, he's improved an awful lot in the last two years, Goffin, but on clay, it seems that despite being his light frame, he's able to get that power and push even Nadal backwards, uh, and he's aggressive enough that when he's on his game, he really slams those balls down the line, he loves that that sort of one-two combination. Yeah, I mean, he was he was very, very unfortunate, and uh, maybe he has, you know, maybe it's going to give him some extra motivation to get this tournament. That tournament you mentioned was also the, the very first for ATP Tennis Radio going going live on tour. So there you go. I just wanted to ask you about that generation. Um, 
We spoke about it almost 365 days ago, I think it was. But I'm talking about, of course, you know, David Goffin, Grigor Dimitrov, Marin Cilic, even Stan Marinka. I mean, these guys have won Grand Slams and ATP Tour Finals. And yet, they've almost been overtaken, in a way, by the new young kids who have come in to the top 10 already. It, it, uh, how close are they to getting back and, and leapfrogging them again? Yeah, I think the young the young brigade, the the Felix, the Denis Shapovalov, the Tsitsipas, the Hashanov, Medvedev, Zverev, they're all, I mean, this generation, I think there's no question that there's more strength and depth and they're probably better than the previous generation, the Dimitrovs of this world, who on their day are great. You know, you said you mentioned Marin Cilic, who won a Grand Slam. Absolutely, he's been in a couple of other finals. Um, but they've all been blocked and mentally scarred by the whippings that they've been beaten. I mean, but you see it when you talk to Sitsipas, Sitsipas we spoke to today about the match with Nadal. And as soon as I mentioned, I could see his face fall. You know, he said, I said, how long did it take to get over that? He said, a long time. And then he didn't really want to talk about it, but he did in the end. But these, so you can tell the effect that those beatings had on the players of that generation. And I think they just lacked the consistency, those players, really to week in, week out, be in the semis, do what Novak did when he broke through, get in the semis and finals. And they had the odd good week, but it was never enough to really convince the top players that mentally they had it in them to, to push them and overtake them. Whereas I think these guys... Somebody made a good point, and I can't remember who it was, but I'm going to take it as my own point, uh, that these guys grew up watching Federer, Nadal, Djokovic on TV, and they've learned from them without being scarred from them, which is really interesting to me. I think that's, without even knowing, that's probably very true, and it's going to help them going forward. Finally this week, let's hear from another youngster whose rise has probably been the biggest in the last 12 months. In fact, I think we can say it has just in terms of where he's ended up. Last year in Monte Carlo, Stefanos Tsitsipas came through qualifying. I remember talking to him after that. Now he's ranked eight in the world. He starts as the number six seed. Here he is talking with the Uncovered team about his passion, not for tennis, but for vlogging. I've been watching all my favorite YouTubers, vloggers, and um, it was very, very uh, interesting to see what the, how, how they were interacting with the fans and what they were doing, what they were creating. So um, I decided to buy my first camera and start vlogging. Oh, yeah. Good morning. Good morning. Sharing my life with uh, my fans, with my family. It's a very, very creative hobby. And it just uh, lets me explore, I, I can say my personality, my own self. I can actually make a nice story out of it and share it with, uh, in this nice platform. I just did the story like a few uh, minutes ago. I'm trying to get better through tutorials that I watch on YouTube, um, other creators that uh, share their experience and their knowledge with you uh, in cinematography, filmmaking. Uh, actually, my uh, uncle uh, is a film producer, film uh, uh, expert, I can say, so he has been helping me a little bit. I actually like to learn every single day. I enjoy taking my time and trying to find the right angles, the right shots to combine them together. It takes quite a bit of time to, to do that, uh, sometimes even days. But at the end, I'm very, very satisfied with my work most of the time. I would be, yeah, very interested to maybe start a career at some point in my life and uh, pursue my dream maybe of becoming a high-end film producer or a filmmaker and uh, share stories with, uh, with people and uh, be part of something amazing. I hope you enjoyed watching. 
was a fun experience. I'm pretty sure about it. See you in another one. Bye-bye. Simon, the fact that Stefanos Tsitsipas sees himself as a future, I don't know, executive producer, it, it speaks volumes. He, he's a, such an interesting guy. He is an interesting guy. He was saying this morning he, his one regret, and he's only, what, you know, 20, what is he talking about, is that he, he hasn't had time to learn more languages yet. He's talking about Japanese, Spanish, and French, and Italian. He speaks about four or five I know, he's, he's doing okay, I think. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy, and he's clearly, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, the Greek thinker, the philosopher. But, you know, he's, he's, he likes other things. And I think it's, it's only healthy to have interests outside of the, the boring or the mundane tennis world every day when you're stuck in the same routines and it can become a little bit mundane. So to keep yourself interested by doing that sort of stuff is great. Who knows, he might be a Quentin Tarantino after he's finished. Well, we talk about the languages. You can also talk about the game. Comparisons with Federer are almost inevitable. Yeah, he's got a very nice, very nice game. He's got, uh, we saw when he beat Federer in Australia this year, the ability to come up with big serves at the right time, uh, play big points well. Um, he's got a very nice, very nice game to watch. Lovely backhand, great temperament. I like the way that he can lose his rag and then just gets rid of it immediately. Next ball, he's right back in it. Um, and I, I think he's got everything. He, he's He's clearly wanted to be number one for as long as he's been on the tennis tour. He's not shy about letting people know that, um, but he thinks he's he's capable of doing it, and I don't I don't uh, don't argue with that. I think he's he's got the talent, he's got the the motivation, he's got the desire. Um, wouldn't be surprised to see him get there. Who's the best of these next geners for you? We're talking Felix Ogyaliasim, uh, Shapovalov, Hachinov, Rublev, Medvedev, the trio of Russians. You've obviously got Tsitsipas, Zverev, who always gets forgotten in these lists because he's gone there so high already. Chorich, Chung. Who, who excites you the most? The, the one who really excites me is Shapovalov because when I watch him, already as good as he is i think there's so much room for improvement you know there's his forehand is a great shot but he could do all sorts with it if he wanted to and with these players who have a lot of shots in their armory and you can see the talent and the the ability they've got it usually takes a little bit longer for them all to come together and to be used at the right time and as he gets stronger as he gets more used to playing on tour big situations i think you're going to find that especially being the left-hander that he is is going to help him i think I think he has everything in his game to be, if there is going to be someone who gets a string of grand slams and not just they carve it up between them, for me it's him. But it, it's it's a big if still, but it's it's uh, for me I would go for him. Okay, fascinating. And as you've got the draw in front of you, come on, who's winning the, the first clay court title or the first big clay court title of the year um, a week today? You can't look past Nadal. First, first clay court tournament, yes, he's been out injured, if he looks good in his first match, then I would be pretty confident that he'll get all the way. All will be revealed. My predictions so far this season have not been nor, great. More of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that is it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Seb Lozier. My thanks again very much to Simon Camber. Simon, thank you very much. To Craig O'Shaughnessy, Felix Ogieliasim and family. Steph Sitsipas, Thomas Johansson. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest from Monte Carlo at ATPTour.com. You can listen live All week on ATP Tennis Radio through the ATP's website, the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters website, 
or direct on TuneIn. You can watch live on Tennis TV. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram. That's at ATP Tennis Radio. You can even email us studio at atptennisradio.com. If you're listening on iTunes, please leave us a review. Otherwise, enjoy the tennis wherever you are and we'll catch you next week, by which time the champion of Monte Carlo will be revealed. See you next time. ATP Tennis Radio brings you comprehensive coverage of the clay court season. Starting in Monaco and ending with Grand Slam coverage of the French Open, courtesy of Radio Roland Garros. That's the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters from the 15th to the 21st of April. The backhand cross got this winner! Followed by the first full ATP 500 coverage at the Barcelona Open Bank Sabadell from the 22nd to the 28th of April. Rafa Nadal is champion in Barcelona once again. Then it's on to the Matua Madrid Open and the Internazionale BNL d'Italia in Rome from the 6th to the 19th of May. Zverev, the only man left standing. Before concluding with Roland Garros in June. Nadal raises his arms in triumph. Rafa, the incomparable in Paris. In all, that's over 40 days of live coverage of the clay court season here on ATP Tennis Radio.